If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Uh, today we're going to be looking at one of the most recognized and one of the most referenced and, and often misreferenced parables that Jesus ever taught. It's normally called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, we're going to see today how that really might not be the most accurate title. Uh, so that's going to be our focus, but honestly, it's virtually impossible uh, to take this parable and, and, and pull it totally out of the context in which we find it. And so what I want to do, at really, instead of trying to be clever and come up with some great intro into a sermon, which is every pastor's dream, is I'd rather let Jesus do that for us. And so if you will, we're just going to read the first two short parables, uh, just verses 1 through 10 of Luke 15, and we're going to understand uh, that those two short parables are imperative for a right understanding of the parable that we're looking at here today. So let's, let's do that together. Let's, will you stand with me and let's, let's read Psalm 15, I mean, not Psalm, Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I confess to you, not that you don't already know this, you you know my heart, but you know that we come in here, you know that I come in here today distracted. I I have come into this room wanting to, seeking to worship you in in spirit and in truth, to to draw near to you with all of my heart, and I confess that that my mind wanders. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in spite of me, that you would work to open my eyes. Lord, that you would work to unstop my deaf ears. God, I pray that you would awaken our souls, that we might draw near to you this morning. That we would not be distracted, but that we might hear from you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please be seated. In each of these uh, first two parables, uh, we see that there is something, okay, some item which is, which is being lost. There, there's a man who has lost a sheep, there's a woman who has lost a coin, and both of them uh, go to great effort. They, they work diligently to find that, that which was lost. They both go to great effort in order to recover their lost possessions. Now, we see that, that both of the lost items are, in fact, recovered so they go, they find them, they bring them back, and then we see that there is rejoicing over the finding. And, and, and that the rejoicing is not just uh, here in sort of the temporal, in the temporal place, but that, 
But there's a spiritual rejoicing taking place in the heavens, like in the cosmos that is, that is palpable and, and proclaimed both on earth and in the heavens. We're told in verse 1 that there, that there are two groups of people there. There are two groups of people present when Jesus is delivering this parable. And, it, and that's important to recognize. That tells us a lot. It says in 15.1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Okay, so that's, that's one group. It's the tax collectors and the sinners. And then verse 2 says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So that's, that's the second group. All right, Jesus is, Jesus is there. He is ministering to the outcasts, to those to whom, if we were willing to be honest with ourselves, the ones who we wouldn't want to associate with to the tax collectors and the sinners. He's engaging with those who would be outsiders, those who we would think, think about as being despicable, okay? The deplorables of their culture. We wouldn't want anything to do with them. And, and as was often the case, the religious elites, the insiders of the time, were there to play. Uh, I, I always picture the, the Pharisees as sort of life referees, just running around blowing their whistle and throwing flags at everything Jesus seems to do. They're just constantly saying, no, you shouldn't be doing that. And he's constantly, you know, right in what he's doing. And so before we go too far into this, I want you to recognize at least one thing. And, and this is something you can take away from here and remember that, that whenever and wherever the gospel of God is being proclaimed, there will be those who gather to hear and to listen and there will be those who gather to grumble and complain. That will be universal, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, both of those groups will be there. There will be those who gather around Jesus to hear his word, to receive his word, to be washed by his word, to be redeemed by his word even. But there will always be those who will stand on the side and grumble at what we're doing. The Apostle Paul knew this to be the case. That's why he could proclaim in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are the aroma of Christ to God. But then he also said that we're the fragrance of death to the outside world. If the people of Jesus can be both the aroma of life to some and death to others, then it makes sense that we would see this happening in the ministry of Jesus here in his time. And it's these two groups it's the tax collectors and the sinners and the, and, and the Pharisees who have drawn near, okay? And, and, and what they grumble is they say, this man, did you see it? This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told three parables. We've seen the lost sheep. We've seen the lost coin. And now we're going to see the parable of the two lost sons. So let's go to Luke 15. Just follow with me. We're going to take this piece by piece today. So we're going to go 11 through 16 here. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is the prodigal son, right? This is, this is him. This is the one that we are so familiar with. This is the one that's referenced in, in pop culture. This is the one who who's talked about a lot. I mean, like we, we talk about pe- people being a prodigal son just regularly, as if that's normative. You see, as a young man, I was convinced that the, 
that the word prodigal, that to be a prodigal just simply meant that you went away and eventually returned. I was convinced that that's what that word meant, that, that to be a prodigal means you go away from where you're supposed to be and then eventually you come back, and that's what makes you prodigal. But that's not what it means to be prodigal. In fact, just a Google search for the definition of the word prodigal will reveal uh, a far more biblical definition of that word than, than the one that I carried with me for years. And rightly defining what it means is of critical importance, okay, to understanding this parable. A basic dictionary defines prodigal as characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure. That's what it means. It means to be reckless. It means to be wasteful. It means to be extravagant beyond your resources. It's to be reckless in spending money, time, or any other commodity. In this case, what makes the younger brother a prodigal is not the destination, It's not the journey, but it's the wasting of his inheritance. Most of us don't care for the younger brother in this parable. Uh, In fact, his his existence strikes against the very ideals that we try to teach our children, that we try to encourage in our culture. And and in truth, it's probably worse than you think. You see, in that first century culture, as as one of two sons, the younger son was entitled to one-third of the family estate. That's what he had coming to him. That was his his rightful claim was to one-third of the family estate. The elder brother would receive two-thirds, but the younger brother was entitled to one-third. That was understood by those who were listening to Jesus speak. They, They understood that. He didn't have to explain all that because they knew it. It was part of their life. And so the issue is not the object that he was after. That that really was his to be had. It's the occasion of his asking. That's what be should be so offensive. It's not even the request as much as it is the timing of the request. Okay, so those who were listening to him would have picked up on that at this juncture. Their ears are are tuning in at this point because this is a violation of of their normal, normal cultural code. This is a violation of the order in which things are supposed to happen. The younger son at this point, to everyone sitting there listening to Jesus, is now a traitor to the family. Tim Keller says on this, to ask while the father still live with the same as to wish him to be dead. So the younger son, the the younger brother, the younger son is saying, I'm not interested in a relationship with you. Just give me your stuff. And so listen, you're you're justified if, if you don't like the younger brother. I don't like him. I don't want anything to do with this guy. I certainly don't want my son to be that way. He's that guy who genuinely believes that everyone else exists simply in order to improve his personal situation. We wouldn't take this sort of thing well today, and they certainly wouldn't have taken it well in the ancient Middle East, okay? They, the expectation would be for the father to cast his son out, to be done with him, to disown him, to excommunicate him from the family, to have nothing to do with this person ever again. But that's not what happens at all. Look at, look at verse 12. Okay, verse 12, something happens there, and we need, we need to notice. After asking for his share of the property that is coming to him, we're told that the father divided his property between them. Okay, that is extraordinary. In order to make such a division of property, effectively, the, the father would have had to sell off most of what he has. They didn't have stocks. They didn't have retirement plans. They didn't have a 401k or a trust fund sitting over there to pull from. Everything was in property, and so to sell land in order to allow this son, who has basically wished that you were dead, and not only wished it, but said it out loud to you, to to give him 
that inheritance and allow him to leave is an extraordinary act on the part of the father. Honestly, at this point, the people sitting there listening would have thought, what a fool this father is. Why would he dare to do that? Just Just to demonstrate how intimately uh, involved the people of that time were with the land. What the, what the son asked for in the original language is the word usius. That, that, that's, that's his share of the goods or the substance. That's, that's, that's all that means, the usius. Just the, it's, it'd, be, it'd be part of the stuff. Give me part of the stuff. What the father, or, or what Jesus says, is that the father divided his, and he uses a different word here. He uses the word bion, bio being the root. So what he's literally saying is that the father divided his life for the son. And it's showing us something here that, that the son failed to understand what he was really asking of the father, but that the father understood exactly what the son was asking of him. And the father does it. He does it. He divided his life. He divided his livelihood. And the younger son took his, his third of the family estate. And, and we see in verse 13 that not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And that is the moment that the son becomes the prodigal son. It's at this point that we see the recklessness of the younger son. You see, his cry was a cry for autonomy. It's not totally different than the sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, right? Who sought to be autonomous from God. They wanted to rule. They wanted to reign. They wanted to be in charge of their lives. They wanted the power. They wanted the knowledge. They wanted the control. They wanted their claim of the Father's property. This is our garden. This is our tree. We will do with it what we want. It's the same cry. It's the same sin. We need to understand that the first sin was exactly that. It was a declaration of independence. It was a cry that we don't need you. We don't need you anymore. We can take care of ourselves. Just give us our stuff and let us handle our business. It's like when your child makes the declaration that they are running away. Our, our middle child, our son, who, who we love very much, did that one time. Uh, he was going to have to clean up his room or something. It was terrible, I'm sure. And, uh, and that was totally unacceptable to him. Uh, so he, at the age of four, declared his independence from the tyranny of the Williams household, a repressive regime. Um, he didn't want to live under that cruel and demanding structure anymore. There was enough of that. And so he broke free. He packed his bag. I still remember uh, he grabbed a pair of underwear a bag of goldfish out of the pantry and, and one of his stuffed animals, I think it was the dog we call Boof, and, uh, and, and Laurie and I sat on the porch and watched as our pride and joy started up the driveway. Um, if you've been to our home, you know that's actually quite a journey. It's, it's like a half a mile through the woods, and so we, we expected to see him vanish around the turn, uh, I think at the mailbox, he broke into the goldfish, and eventually, it's like, you know what, I'm going to need something to wash this down with, and so I came on back. Um, I, I still remember, like, unpacking his stuff and thinking, man, my, that's not bad, okay? A clean pair of underwear and some goldfish, that's pretty good for four. Um, he took what was his share of the family estate in his mind, <laughs> this is mine, and he started walking up that driveway. 
That's the younger son in this parable. He has claimed his independence and now he has proven through his ignorance that he has squandered his property. By the way, I asked my son's permission to use that story. Um, He has squandered his property in reckless living. He did eventually come back too. Isn't it interesting how Jesus how Jesus affirms that the property that was squandered was the son's property. You see, it wasn't fine print attached to it. He, the, the father genuinely gave it to him. So this is yours. And he genuinely went and squandered it. You see, he was just, the son was just young enough to know everything. And it cost him. Now look at 17. Look at 17. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. All right, here's what's happening here. He's having, he's having an awakening. Uh, James Boyce says on this, one of the tragedies of sin is that it blinds us to our condition. So we imagine ourselves to be happy when in reality we are miserable or free when we are enslaved. And that's exactly our boy's experience. He is out there living it up, doing everything he wants, not understanding that with each dime he's spending, he is putting more and more shackles on his life. And so verse 17 is an awakening. Kent Hughes says he sought freedom and thought he had found it, but now he was in virtual slavery. Consider his condition just from a cultural perspective. He's a a servant of a Gentile in a Gentile land doing work that would make him ceremonially unclean, thus alienating himself from God. But 17 happens. In 17, that's the moment of awakening. You see, at that point, the darkness of the night is in in just a moment. It is shattered by the breaking of the dawn of this man's realization. And we're told that he, it's, it's very simple, he came to himself. He began to understand that the greatest problem in his life was not the father it, was not, it wasn't even the famine, but it was, in fact, his greatest problem in the world was himself. You may have heard the story of G.K. Chesterton uh, when, when, he, when a newspaper posed the question simply, uh, what is wrong with the world? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a Catholic thinker, is said to have written a very, very brief uh, letter to the editor in response. In response to that question of what's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, that's the moment of clarity. That's the awakening. It's when God introduces us to ourselves in the face of his holiness and allows us to, to see ourselves for who we really are. That's what John Calvin called the first use of the law. He said it functions like a mirror, that God gives us the law, and then when we see it, what we really see is ourself in light of it. We see how we fall short, so that we can, as the younger son in the parable, that we might come to ourselves. At this moment, he has realized his depravity. He's realized what we might call his lostness, 
Look at the rehearsed petition. Look at it in verse 18. He says, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, and we would say, Amen, right? For the first time, the son seems to, he seems to not be confused. For the first time, he is not mistaken. In this moment, now, at last, he is no longer young enough to know everything. He has come to himself and he has remembered his heritage. This is wisdom. You see, it's not, it's not the fool who turns to the Lord, but the wise. That's, that's Proverbs 14, 16. It says, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but the fool is reckless and careless. And then in verse 20, look at verse 20. Verse 20, he heads home. He's got his speech prepared. He's all ready and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I, I, don't, I don't know if there is a more powerful image of our Father in heaven than the one that we see before us in this passage. Look back at 20. I want you to look back at 20, and as we do this, I want you to put yourself there. I know that's tough, but I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine being there. Put yourself there on the ground. This is what it says. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Can you see the son's face at this point? Jesus is painting this picture for us. Can you see him in his tattered clothing? His, his dirt-covered head hanging in shame, his brokenness actually visible. Can you see him? You see him in your mind. You need to see him. And now, now that you see him, can you imagine him at the end of verse 20? He's so confused. At this moment, you see, from the moment that he dared to believe that his father was running to him, Middle Eastern men did not run. That was not part of the deal for them. At the moment he sees his father running down the hill, his entire plan is in disarray. And so in verse 21, he starts to deliver that rehearsed profession of repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but but he doesn't even get to finish. It's not that he can't. It's not that he can't finish. It's that the Father won't let him. It's an unbelievable show of grace and mercy. The Father restores him. He puts a robe on him. It says the best robe. That would have been his robe, okay? He put his robe on his back. He puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. He tells the servants to prepare a feast, kill the fattened calf, and let's do this thing right. That's like, go get the best steaks you can buy. This is happening. And why does he do this? Why would he do this? For the son who has squandered everything. Look at verse 24. 
For this, this is what it says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I love that last line. Look at what the father calls him. Did you miss it? Look in 24. For this my son. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found like a good father with his wayward son. He's telling him, he's telling him to come on home. This is a beautiful scene. This is a tragically beautiful scene. I mean, it's, it's both heartbreaking and uplifting at the same time. And, and, one of the, and this is one of the scenes that the tax collectors would have absolutely loved. Because, see, for them, this is hope. Jesus just painted a picture for them of the hope of redemption. But, there were, but they weren't the only ones there, right? See, we're told at the very beginning there were two groups there. There were the tax collectors and the sinners. There were also the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, they're there too. And so the story continues. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so so the older brother, he isn't happy. While the return of the younger brother is being celebrated, while the while the party is actually going on inside, while there's music and dancing to the degree that he can hear it from out in the fields, we're told that the son, the older son was angry and that he refused to go in. He's been out working, right? He's been out there taking care of what is left of the family estate. He's been laboring to support the family, to support the life, the bios that, that the father had talked about earlier. And here the younger brother, this prodigal son has returned and the older brother hears the party going on in celebration. Here Keller points to a couple of reasons why. Why the older brother is so upset. He says this, he he is especially upset about the cost of all that is happening. By bringing the younger brother back into the family, he, that's the father, has made him an heir again with a claim to one third of the now very diminished family wealth. You see, it was one thing for the father to lose. One thing for you to give that fool your money, it's a whole other thing for the older brother to give that fool my money. It's a whole different ball game now because now the elder brother is the one who stands to lose. Now he is paying the price for his younger brother's restoration. Look at his claims. Look at how he justifies his position in verse 29. He says, look, by the way, that's like saying, listen up. 
look you. That's not like a positive, hey, I got something to tell you. This is, this is about to go bad for you, Dad. Look, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I'll confess to you, that sounds like a weird request in our culture today. All right? But when this son of yours, this what? This son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There, there are two things that stand out here. The first is just a statement. The elder brother doesn't refer to the younger as his brother, but as this son of yours. This son of yours. He will not claim him. Will not. He's saying, in effect, that's not my brother. That's not my family. That's not part of my bios. The second thing that stands out is the question. And the question really flows out of the first two parables. You see, if the elder brother knew what was happening that he was squandering the property with the prostitutes. If the elder brother knew that was happening, if he knew that he had forgotten who he was and where he came from, that he was living in sin and depravity, the question is, that should be asked, is why didn't he go and bring him home? And here's where we see the true aim of this parable. You see, those grumbling Pharisees and scribes would now be starting to feel some tension in their own hearts. The mirror of the law has now been turned around on them and, and, and perhaps on us. As Jim Boyce pointedly says, the, the Pharisees are the older son. And this is where we see a difference between the first two parables and ours. Remember that in each of those, we see that someone has lost something and then they, they go and find it. They go to great lengths to find it, right? They, they leave the 99 in order to go find the one, to search for him. They, they light a lamp, sweep the house, and search diligently in order to find the one coin. But that doesn't happen in this case. In this case, the one who should have gone looking stayed home and kept working. And so here we see the flaw in this elder brother. Again, Keller points out, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true elder brother. Where is the brother that would go after the lost sons, the lost daughters? This parable, if rightly understood, creates a longing for the true elder brother who will wander out into the wilderness, who will light the lamp and search diligently you see, we have the benefit today of knowing that Jesus is, is the Son of Man who says that He came to seek and to save the lost, right? That's why He came into the world. Just like we talked about purpose in our creation, Jesus came with a purpose. He didn't just come to check it out. He came to seek and to save His lost sheep, His lost coins, His lost, his lost brothers. Jesus is our true elder brother. More importantly, He's your true elder brother. One of the things that we need to realize from this parable, one of the things that is abundantly clear is that forgiveness always involves a price that someone always has to pay. Forgiveness is not free. It always costs the one doing the forgiving. The problem for us is that if, if we aren't on guard, if we aren't on guard against our own pride, if we aren't on guard against the temptation to think that we are awesome, and that honestly, God's really lucky to have someone like us. 
If we aren't careful, we'll forget that we are all lost sons. We'll be the ones grumbling at the word of our Lord. We'll be the ones standing outside of the party in celebration of redemption. We'll be standing outside going, but I've done everything for you. You you owe me. Yeah. We have to remember that it was our true elder brother who came to seek and to save us and that it's all on him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is is, is very simply that he came to bring us home. He came to give his life. He paid our price. He gave his life as a, right? As a ransom for many. As our true elder brother who was willing to lose it all in order to gain you. You. As our true elder brother who brings us back home to the father who now runs out to meet you. Who puts a robe on your back puts a ring on your finger, puts shoes on your feet and prepares a feast inside the house and says, let's go eat. The good news for us is that in Christ, we are no longer lost, but found. We are no longer dead, but alive. Remember in Romans 8.15, we're told that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. To be an heir means to be, means that there's an inheritance. We must walk in the light of that truth. If you have put your trust in Christ alone for your eternal life, you are a son of of the king. You are a daughter of the king. You have a father and you have a family. You have a new life, a new bion, a new bios that you've been welcomed into. And we're told in scripture that nothing now, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we see this demonstration of how he will run out to us. As an heir, You also become part of the legacy. And so you have a charge. You have a charge to represent our true elder brother here on earth. That means that you carry his name with you everywhere that you go. And with that name, you are given a commission. And you know it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, right? And as his brothers and sisters, we're called to go and make disciples. Our world is desperately in need of good elder brothers. Let's get to it. Let's not stay there working the land when we're called to go out and find the lost. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you that even as the Son of God, you took the time to teach your people that they might know you, that we might draw near to you. I pray that you would work in spite of my weakness here, that you would continue to open our eyes to who you would have us be in you. Lord, that we might live as your brothers, as your sisters, as redeemed prodigals who now get the joy of being good elder brothers to the world. God, help us to look more like Jesus when we leave here. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.